we are. So the first thing I want to recognize is who's here and who's not. So as Jennifer shared on the list, she's away this month with family, and so won't be here with us in flesh. And Paul mentioned last time that he would be away with tending to some abbot duties that conflicted with this date and that were not able to be resolved. Oh, good. And here are three of our mysterious folks with a bit of a late start today. Great. Okay, great. So who, who we know, hello, hello, that would not be is Joanna Glazier, who is recovering um, from a procedure. And Anita is here, so after all. And Amy is here after all. So I don't know about Cater. Do you happen to know anybody? She's delayed. She's delayed. Okay. And Juliana is delayed, as we just heard. So. so we'll have a few more joining as the day goes on. Great. I think this is a good time to sort of take stock of where things are and where you are with kind of the little t truths, the little t truth expectations of the program rather than the big ultimate t truths of, you know, what you're discovering. But um, I would just invite you to kind of step back and take a look. Are you really getting what you expect from your volunteer service? Is there a way to course correct that at this point? If not... Um, it should be active at this point in order for this process and the way it's designed to actually have the impact that we hope it does. So that's one dimension. Um, Are you up to date on your papers and reflections and have those been turned in or those coming back to you in a timely way? I know I missed a couple people last time, but I've got them this time. Um, and then on your interviews, are you up to date on your interviews? Because it begins to cascade a bit. If you miss one, then you're going to just miss that opportunity. So take stock. Step back. Take stock. You know, we, uh, as readers, we keep track of the folks that we're reading. But the rest, it's, it's really, this is your program. This is your opportunity. But we want it to be as valuable for you as possible. And uh, so invite you to take the opportunities that are built into the program. So what about today? So our agenda is uh, kind of a fun one, even though you'll just have the two of us and a wonderful guest. So uh, Gil and I will sort of trade off back and forth. But we'll also have a fellow who graduated from the program, Walt Opie, who is a longtime practitioner and um, knows a lot about student of and expert on addiction. And addiction is such a good topic for us today as we look at truth because um, so often it's hard to see the truth of how we or those near us or those who were impacted by are connected to a pattern of addiction of one kind or another. And then it's also um, often a response to truth that just can't be born, you know, for one reason or another. It's a way of muffling the truth. So it fits really well, and it fits really well with the fact that it's probably the most common creator of chaos in family systems when you're working with a family in the hospital is some form of addiction that's embedded in that family. 
Um, so it's good to be able to recognize that, you know, it, it, just know something about it and know how it impacts families and, fam- and group systems. When you're running a group, it's really important to know. A uh, lot of times it comes up as a topic. So we'll look forward to that. Um, we'll also um, talk about the uses of truth and chaplaincy and do a little of uh, uh, dwelling and discomfort together and thinking about that and talking about that. And then we'll have uh, later in the afternoon the uses of ritual in chaplaincy and its usefulness in uh, containing a truth that you would like to amplify or dispel. So the uses of ritual really for healing, um, and we'll talk more about that when we get there. Then we'll end with an intention exercise that will be its own ritual and depart into the beautiful spring evening, I'm imagining. Okay. So one more thing I want to say about truth as we're kind of winding our way through this topic today. I love the sense of being truth, being so present that we are from our being who we are, as we are, where we are, with whom we're dwelling at this point. Um, and I offer another approach that I want, uh, that, that I found very provocative. It's a couple of lines from Soren Kierkegaard, and he said, there are two ways to be fooled. One is to believe what isn't true, and the other is to refuse to believe what is true. And what strikes me about that is both require a loss of innocence, you know, when we are completely undiscriminating about what's coming toward us, it's very easy to believe what isn't true because for whatever reasons that we're drawn to, to this set of facts or this representation or whatever. Um, and then we all fool ourselves a lot. It's hard to believe what's true <clears throat> sometimes with what's right before us in a lot of different ways. And, you know, that moment when your eyes kind of, the scales fall from your eyes and you're kind of open to something, you're like, oh my gosh. But it's always, you know, the older and wiser girl, the older and wiser person. Um, it's because we have been fooled and now we're, we woke up to it. Or we see something really clearly that we were hiding from before. It's a little tricky, a little shadowy, but that's very important in the service work we're doing. All right. So take us deeper. And welcome to those who joined while we were introducing. So the topic of truth. <clears throat> and as I was uh, reflecting on it, is it loud enough for me? My voice? Okay. A little bit louder. Maybe not. No, it doesn't come any closer. Let's see, is that any better? Yeah? Is it not working? Or? I'm on mic one. I'm on uh, mic one, yeah. Could, you know why? Not on. No. <laughs> <laughs> that tricky little thing of the button. I was fooled about the... I was, I was fooled about what was true. <laughs> and I believed <laughs> what was false. <laughs> And um, so, um, 
so in, in reflecting most uh, like last night and this morning about this topic of truth, um, what's uh, kind of came most up in my mind was the story of the woman in Samadhi and the idea of w- uh, wisdom about delusion. And um, so, you know, what is, it to, we, what is it that we can recognize as being the truth? The, the Four Noble Truths are, you know, in Buddhism, central to the idea of truth. And they're kind of, uh, at least half of them have to do about wisdom about delusion, a wisdom about how we suffer. So first, first, the big challenge is to understand that we suffer. And for some people, they skirt around it or avoid it or close down to it. And some people see no value in their, their suffering or being present for their suffering. And uh, I'm in one of the few, I'm in one of the few professions where in the right context, maybe I can encourage people to suffer better. (laughs) And uh, and what I, you know, I think usually when I say that people know what I mean, I I think people mostly trust that I'm interested in their ending of their suffering. But sometimes to get to the ending of suffering, uh, you can't skirt around it or avoid it. You have to kind of not just see it, but sometimes you have to be it. You have to really enter into it and really experience it fully. And so uh, the first noble truth is to, in a sense, in a certain kind of way, to be the suffering, be the discomfort. The second uh, noble truth is the recognition of uh, the cause or the condition that brings about that suffering. And uh, there are many causes and conditions we can find. The classic kind of Buddhist explanation is it's craving. And uh, craving is... uh, I, I take that word craving or tanna, thirst, the literal, literal word is thirst, as intentionally a vague word in which we populate with the different flavors or different aspects of compulsion. Because one way or the other, I think it's our compulsions that keep us stuck. And without being stuck, there probably would be no the, the suffering, the dukkha that Buddhism talks about. And so... Uh, the call and Four Noble Truths is really to see how we're stuck, to see what that compulsion is or the thirst is. And then, uh, and then to, in a certain kind of way, uh, be stuck better. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, really feel and experience the compulsion, the craving, the resistance, the pushing away, the holding on, the grabbing, whatever it might be that... Uh, at the moment not not so that you act it out better but so that you really know it better you see it better and these two things to really you know suffer better and know compulsion better uh, I found uh, gives birth to compassion um, for oneself and for others Um, you know we certainly don't want to become more skilled at compulsion more skilled at suffering but we want to know it well enough that we're not fooled by it. And so this idea of the first two noble truths, to, to really see the truth of this, is central to Buddhism. And some people um, uh, think this is bad news. <clears throat> you know, it's kind of like Buddh- Buddhism is a party pooper because of the emphasis on, you know, important of suffering. <clears throat> but that, that comes in the second noble truths, which I sometimes will... <clears throat> uh, restate that um, uh, the first noble truth is suffering and the cause of suffering. Uh, The the second two is happiness and the 
and the conditions for happiness. And uh, the way that traditionally is that the truth of the cessation of suffering, <clears throat> but the cessation of suffering uh, is a kind of happiness, either a very full, fully embodied kind of happiness or a kind of much more subtle happiness that's available to people. It's supposed to be the good news. And, um, and then there's this wonderful path. And I think of the Eightfold Path, the, the, the Fourth Noble Truth, as a, a being a, a path of being truthful, being truth with the view that you have, with the intention you have, with the behavior that you have, the ethics, the sila. Um, and, uh, and then the efforts you make, make them find the efforts, efforts that are really true to yourself. And, uh, and then mindfulness and concentration. Mindfulness practice <clears throat> is a, a practice of telling the truth to yourself. Um, that's I, I, I really at the bottom line. That's what it's about, and um, and what mature mature people do is they tell themselves the truth, and that uh, one of the characteristics of a of a wise mature Buddhist practitioner is uh, they never lie to themselves, and uh, whether whether it's appropriate for white lies or somehow, you know, that's a whole ethical quandary people talk about, and so. But uh, the one place where it's never appropriate to lie is to yourself. <clears throat> and so um, the ability to see oneself and know what's going on and, uh, and be honest about it is kind of the purpose of the whole Eightfold Path. And the uh, goal is that uh, in Buddhist, Buddhist practice is to come to a place where you really appreciate this so much that it makes you happy. That somehow uh, the recognition, the acknowledgement of what you didn't see, the acknowledgement, um, even if it's difficult and painful, that there's some aspect of you that uh, relaxes or releases. Ah, yes, this is, this is unfortunate. <laughs> but yes, now I know what it is. I know what's going on. This is good. Now there's a path. Now, now I can <clears throat> engage in it and practice with it and find my way. And I, I kind of believe that there's a strong drive inside of us <clears throat> to the truth. And the reason that I... <clears throat> they're kind of more... Uh, um, very rational, almost mechani- uh, mechanistic way in which I would explain that is that um, um, anything short of being true and being truth takes a lot of work. <laughs> you know, to uh, n- not acknowledge what's really going on, to not really see uh, how we're avoiding the truth or uh, making up delusion. Um, it takes effort and work to do that. Um, it's not something that we just kind of wake up in the morning and and just somehow it just it's just there and just completely effortless and um, there's a, some kind of mental activity going on that uh, somehow the mind is engaged in. Uh, we're involved in some delusion. We're involved in some ideation, some idea. We're involved in some idea of self. We're involved in some desires uh, or some aversions. Um, and uh, we're, we're, you know, the human mind is a, constantly a constructive mind. It's constructing its experience, constructing our social world in so many different ways. And, and, uh, and lying takes a lot of work. In conventional terms, they say that um, it's easier to tell the truth because you have less to remember. You know, if you're lying, you have to, you have to remember the lie. And, you know, you know like, what did I just say? And, and, you know, and... 
then you don't remember it right, and then it creates all kinds of confusion. You, but yesterday you said this. And, and um, so it's the truth, generally easier, and it doesn't, doesn't require all this extra work. So the mechanistic kind of explanation of this drive to the truth is that um, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of tension. The stronger the lie, the more it is. And the whole system wants to move towards peace. The whole system wants to move to be open and present without all that extra work and distance and, and, um, and separation and, and uh, walls that go up when there's lies. Lies don't help people connect to each other. And so, um, and so in practice, I think what happens, what I hope happens as we become more mindful, more present, that uh, uh, we start, uh, the system, we or the system sides, start recognizing the tension of, of the delusions we live under. And um, even if we don't even recognize what the delusion is, the effort is recognized, the resistance, the tension, the hardness, the separation. And then uh, that begins to let go. That's the direction it wants to go because it doesn't want to do all this work. You know, it's, it's tiring. And so to let go and let go and let go. And then as the deeper we let go of delusions and this constructive act, action, activity of the mind, the more we c- c- can feel the goodness of being the truth of being, uh, which I think is synonymous with uh, just really being who we are. Uh, you don't have to pretend anymore or be different than who we are. And in a certain kind of way, we don't have to even know who we are to be ourselves. We don't have to even know what the truth is to be the truth. And sometimes the constant attempt to try to understand obfuscates the, the truth because there's a truth of just being the truth. And that's one of the things I think that chaplains bring. And uh, they bring being a truthful person, being true. Uh, and sometimes that means that, uh, they, that they don't know who they are in being a chaplain. But what they are is they're bringing presence. They're bringing the ability to be present and open to whatever is there, including what's there for themselves as they're being a chaplain, as they're working with people. And, th- and just being willing to be present and be with the truth of the person you're with. Um, and this can be quite simple. Uh, when I was in one of the first uh, hospital visits I made, it was to a person who was in very dire straits. And, um, and everyone, everyone I was telling her that um, you'll get better. You'll get better. The doctors, the family, you'll get better. It's okay. And, um, and I showed up and I heard what was going on and I, I just said very simply, I said, uh, this must be really hard. And she kind of cried and relaxed and said, you're the first one who isn't trying to tell me how difficult this is. And this is serious, what's going on. And just to, to have that simple acknowledgement was, you know, made her kind of supported her, helped her, help something release. And then, you know, the conversation continued in a different way. And so, uh, and so, to show up and just name what's there, recognize what's there, or not even name it, be with it and allow it to be there. One of the reasons I, I really value a lot that, and it's kind of one of the requirements for this program is that people who uh, are going to be chaplains through this training should do some retreat practice, silent retreat practice, because there's something about sitting in silence on retreat that teaches us how to be present without pushing or holding or adding or fixing or 
but just offering this open presence to, oh, this is the truth, this is what's happening here. And, um, and sometimes it's spoken and sometimes it doesn't have to be spoken. It makes space for something to evolve because the truth is never static. It's what unfolds. And, um, and uh, if Paul was here, he would usually uh, talk about uh, one of the aspects of the truth is being the truth of suchness or thusness. Uh, the truth of, and, and that uh, I think for him, one of the highest truths is the truth of just, the, just this moment and its suchness, the simplicity and just, just what it is without anything extra. But what is this without anything extra? And, um, and what is this wisdom about delusion? Plenty of times, <clears throat> plenty of times, maybe most of the time, I could easily recognize in myself that how I am is not some great Buddhist ideal. I may be, my mind is more distracted than it's supposed to be as a Buddhist teacher. Uh, my, I have more discomfort, I have more stress, I have more something that lives inside of me. And uh, I have, I'm grumpy, or sometimes I'm angry, sometimes I'm sad, sometimes I'm happy, all these things exist. Um, and uh, and uh, I think that's really important part of what's the suchness is. That's also the suchness of the moment. It isn't like if I get to the suchness, then I'm going to be floating in a cloud and be empty and just everything is going to be, you know, wonderful. That how I am is part of the, part of the suchness of the moment. It's part of the truth. And to open to what's going on is to open up to what's going on in here and be willing to be present for it and to, in a certain kind of way, be comfortable with it. Comfortable with our discomfort to recognize the truth of the discomfort we have and to be comfortable with it enough that then we can be wise with it, wisdom about delusion. We can be wise about whether that's useful information for the chaplaincy encounter we have. Should they even be told that? Or maybe not. Uh, does it, is it giving you information about what's happening in the room that's actually important to help you understand? Because sometimes it's our emotional, physical response that uh, is the first indication for there's something here that I'm missing or something here that needs attention. And so what's happening with you is as important as what's happening with the other and how to hold them all in the suchness of the moment. And in that way, begin finding your way forward and, and, uh, and, uh, and finding your way forward in the suchness of the relationship you have with people. So mindfulness is a practice of telling yourself the truth and um, being the truth, recognizing, being, speaking the truth. Uh, And I hope that this chaplaincy work that you're doing is a powerful place for you to discover the truth, to discover what's true, and especially in yourself, uh, in the very personal, subjective ways. Because often in chaplaincy, we're up against environments and situations that, uh, and more often than many people have in a lifetime. Uh, and so, uh, you know, tragedies and sufferings and 
tensions and all kinds of things and tr- that people go through in hospitals and prisons and other places. And, um, and so it's such a powerful place to see how we react and how we respond and what happens in us. And, and I, none of that's a mistake, but it's be included. That also have to be true for, be honest about and see what's going on and find a way forward. So it's a, this, the truth thing is a powerful thing, beautiful thing. And um, the last thing is that um, um, perhaps it's no coincidence that um, isn't it the seventh, right? The seventh parami? Is that right? I think it's the seventh. Anyway, it's, it's well past halfway. And, uh, and uh, I, the, um, the paramis, uh, it's kind of like all the preceding paramis are building our capacity to really enter the truth, be the truth. It's not an easy thing to do this. So it's easy maybe enough to talk about it, but it really requires a lot of maturity and preparation. And so you know, generosity and ethics and letting go and wisdom and effort. And last week was patience in order to um, do the, you know, to really, so that's, you know, prepare yourself and make yourself the kind of person who can be truthful, be the truth. Thank you. Well, thank you. Excellent. In a certain way, I, I sort of wish that after hearing that, we could just go out and be in our environment of where we're offering chaplaincy because that such, was such a perfect setup for it. But we'll step back and take the luxury of this day to stand apart from those we're serving and um, think about and practice together a little bit. You know, how can we use truth in chaplaincy, and and where do where does it serve, and what are some of the dilemmas that arise, and um, how comfortable are we with the various ways that we're called upon to either share a truth, or hold a truth, or discern whether to withhold a truth, um, so that capacity to be present and to be truth is very, very important because we're not always going to be speaking about everything we see or know, uh, even though there'll be a part of us that really senses, "Mm, I wish I could do this or that. So Gil began with where I was planning to begin, which is that, you know, truth is the bottom line for Buddhist chaplaincy, isn't it, really? We start with the Four Noble Truths we've just reviewed so beautifully. Um, And there's that sense that just as in our own experience and our own practice, we've had that taste of being freed from some constriction, some blindness, some ignorance, um, and that there's kind of like an ah, ah, yeah. You know, that's kind of a whole body response to, oh, I see that. Uh, and and that kind of relief and ease movement into a little more ease, and and that I think is the goal of how we use truth, 
in the interaction with patients and the interaction with peers and the interaction with staff wherever we're serving. Um, Because more, I think, than any other healer, except perhaps the physician, um, the chaplain is the person that people want to have a felt sense that their very being has this kind of integrity and authenticity. And if, if you don't, or on a bad day, or, or in, a, in an unfortunate encounter where you're, something is resparked and you're reactive, uh, you, you could find um, that people are, are saying to you, wow, you know, that doesn't seem very healing to me, because there's that lack of um, self-awareness around what's going on and perhaps a lack of ownership. So first, we always have to be truthful with ourselves. You know, if our goal, if our hope with serving others has a dimension of wanting them to be free within the suffering that they can't avoid and ultimately to be free from suffering, uh, we, we have to know what that looks like. We have to know what it feels like. We have to know how hard it is. And so we have to have our own practice and be clear within ourselves. Um, you know, so what... Think back. What has your journey been um, to finding a location at this moment where you're serving? Even your volunteer service, even if it isn't intended in your mind or in your plan to be long-term, somehow you arrived there to be of service. And what, what truths along the way of arriving there did you discover about yourself? It might be as simple as, I really don't like hospitals, but I'm kind of intrigued by teaching or being part of a group or a circle that teaches in, 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 in a jail or a prison. That, that, I, I can do that. I, there's a lot of reasons why that fits for me. So that sense of kind of fit, that's a place where we start in our chaplaincy, is making sure that where we hope to serve is actually a good fit for what we have to offer. Um, I think I've shared with you that I hated hospitals. And until I actually felt called to be a healing presence in a particular hospital that was a really, um, had a special feeling to it, that was a place where I was able to confront that aversion and grow through and past it. I'm not sure I could have done that at a different kind of setting. But to be able to recognize it, oh, yeah, I feel okay here. And this is where I really think I could learn, I'm going to try it. Um, There have been other settings for chaplaincy that are much harder for me. A lot of my colleagues do um, disaster work chaplaincy or work with trauma very directly as chaplains to police or fire personnel or EMTs. Um, I don't mind an emergency room. I like the containment of it, and I like the team, and I like that we're there and we're not going anywhere. But it's very hard for me to go out into a place of trauma and be present. I find it overstimulating to the way I perceive, and I'm not sure there's much of me left to be truth in that situation. Other folks are so amazing at it. So that kind of just simple discernment, very important in this work. You know, be to be in an environment where you can give the most, where you can come to a place of ease and at-homeness. You know, I can walk into any ICU anywhere in the world, and I'm at home. It feels comfortable. And that's years and years of work and years and years of 
discerning, this is a good place for me. So hopefully you can have some sense of that for yourself, you know, where you're really comfortable, where you're at ease, where you're aware and you're still growing, but um, you're not so stretched that, that there's nothing you can offer. Because we, as we've said many times, and I hope when you think of me in years to come, you remember this phrase, you are the instrument. It's, it's you. It's not anything you carry. It's not anything you say. It's not anything you bring in. We're not like doctors and nurses who can give medication and ease pain. Um, we're not even particularly like the, the nurse who can actually, you know, hold a hand in a certain way and be there with her healing knowledge. Not that we won't hold hands, not that there won't be that sense of laying on of hands if that's in the tradition that you serve from, but it's not the, it's not the same. It's who we are. That's really what we bring. And so keeping that finely honed, keeping our practice truthful about who we are, and then as we've shared over the course of our time together, knowing also when it's time to move to a new setting or a new place for us so that our service can stay fresh and real, and we can be replenished and resilient and growing as well. So truthful with yourself. Then how really do we be truthful with patients, with clients, with students, with the group members, wherever we're serving? Um, and I think there are probably there, there are five elements of this I'd like to reflect on with you. The first is a revelatory truth. You know, we're going to get a lot of information about patients Depending on our background and our experience and our training, we'll have probably a fair amount of insight at some point about what's going on. You know, the 10th time you're working with a family that has a local caregiver and one of, but one of the siblings was far away and now they're coming swooping in and wanting to delay everything because they have unresolved business with the family. You know, the first time you have that, it's all new and you're learning it. The 10th time, you're going to know something about how this is likely to go down about how long it's going to take, and about what's useful to each of the family members, what's useful to the patient. You'll have had a chance to practice a little bit about how you say to the distant um, daughter who comes in, this must be really hard for you. You haven't seen your mom in a while. How is she different from the last time you saw her? Because what you might be doing is drawing her into a process of bringing her from the past to the present and doing that in a way that will help her restore her to the community of her the rest of her family, the best you can. Um, the local daughter who's been the only caregiver for the last six months with very little respite, who's exhausted, who knows her mother is dying and she, there's nothing that's going to do any good about delaying that. That's her felt truth. How to be with her, how to give her a sense of respite in this moment, how to invite conversation with the other daughter. Uh, you know, you will be saying some things, you won't be saying other things. You um, might have learned that it, it's a little bit too much truth, too revelatory to say, do you think your mother's suffering? Because that's probably what you're observing with this delayed of pulling off the life support when the person is really ready to go and the rest of the family senses that so deeply and have their reasons and that they're able to explain it, but the one who's coming from a distance doesn't get that yet and they need time to catch up. So, you know, what you reveal, what, when you reveal it, how you reveal it, it's very, uh, very delicate, very delicate. I imagine this is similar in the groups that you're leading. And as you're thinking about that, 
when you see something that's going on with someone in the group, how you are present to it, when it's positive to reflect back a little bit, and um, how that takes a lot of skill and a lot of delicacy too, I would imagine, you know. Does anybody want to share something that comes to your mind about revealing well or revealing in a way where you wish you could have revealed it a different way? Not so skillful. Because you'll be telling some truths to people who may not see it quite as clearly yet as you do. It could be as simple. Let's, let's go back to something really concrete. You may know that the doctor plans to discharge this patient to a nursing home and not keep them in the hospital to, to die, that, they, that that's really the plan, and the family really wants this patient to stay in the hospital. You know this. You're probably, it's probably not part of your role to reveal that. So, or it might be. The doctor could say, you've got a good relationship with this family. Can you work with them because this is our plan? So when do you reveal? When don't you reveal? You know, what is your duty? It could be more delicate, like the situation I'm talking about, where you're working with the psychodynamics of a family coming to grips with the fact that the mother is dying. And the closest, the ones who really know her well, are so clear about that and so ready to let go. Welcome, Cater. Um, and the one from a distance is, is really saying, no, this, this can't be right, you know, and there's a lack of trust or whatever. So how, what you reveal and don't reveal to those different family members as you work with them. Information and insight. And it's also true with staff. You know, patients will share things with you, um, and you, you will be discerning. Do I share this truth? with the staff or not. In the example Gil gave of, of um, where everyone was being very upbeat with a patient who was really having a hard time and dealing with a lot of discomfort, pain, suffering from that, you know, does he say to the nurse as he goes out, um, comfort, I think she could use a little comfort. You know, she's having a hard time. And, uh, or is that the sacred information between the two of them and that's not the place so much goes into that discernment it's hard to anticipate it there's not a right answer how well do the staff know you how close are you to the patient will you be able to be back is there someone else you should would that the patient's been encouraged to share this with so it's on their responsibility there's a lot of ways to go but um you know those insights that and that information that's shared with us by patients or by clients or by group members. Um, when do we share it? When don't we? And what do we do with it so that we're, as we've talked before, not carrying a lot of that? You know, how do we um, assure that our practice allows us to let go of what's shared with us and to empty and to release it? It's, it's not our truth, ultimately, may have been the truth of our encounter, but it's not our truth to move forward. So reflecting truth back, I think this is something that anyone who's a good listener does almost automatically, but the power of it in the work that we do is very, very profound. So just as, you know, Gil observing that, hmm, um, it looks like you're, you know, you're having a hard time, or... um, I don't, you know, I I would often say to patients, you know, I don't know what you're experiencing, but but I'm noticing that your hands are clenched. Are you in pain? Um, 
reflecting back what we're seeing and what we're sensing and what we're feeling um, can be very important for that for for a person's own acknowledgement. Ah, yes, that is what's going on with me. Or, you know, we've reflected back what we see and they're not quite ready to deal with that yet. Or that isn't right. Um, oh, no, I'm doing that because I'm doing my exercises for my arthritis. You know, it could be a lot of things and we don't know. But to be willing to mirror back what we're seeing or what we're hearing. Um, a lot of times, <laughs> for a lot of reasons, people cry in the hospital um, and so, so rather than saying, oh, are you sad today? I kind of learned to say, oh, I see tears. What's going on? And they can be so many things going on. And it's, it, but it gives the person a chance to, to see what I'm seeing to, to, and, then to, and then to share or not share based on where they are. So I think of that as, as reflecting or mirroring uh, the truth of what we see. Then teasing out the truth from a, a patient's um, words or gestures or whatever, this is, is more uh, nuanced and often difficult to do if you're dealing with someone you'll only see once. But if you have a relationship with a patient, you're, you're serving in a setting where you're getting to know someone over time or um, someone in a sniff and you're getting to know them over time and you begin to kind of have more of a sense of how the, how the give and take goes and you've heard something many times and you think there's something in there but you don't quite know what it is so how do you engage with that? Um, you know, you've, it, the last three times we've been together you've talked a lot about your daughter what's going on with, with her and you. You know, just inviting that deeper conversation if the person is, is into, interested in it. Um, and uh, that's a place where if you're really socially and emotionally adept, you'll probably have super good timing. Um, someone like me who's really introverted, actually, and uh, a little socially reclusive in some ways, it took me a long time to get okay with the fact that I often would kind of get that wrong, but I knew there was something to go deeper about, but I'm not always sure what it is. And so how how to invite that and then be okay with, okay, I'm kind of awkward at it, but wow, we really got to something, you know? So I can be the awkward one and they can be the adept one. It's, it's fine. It took a long time to get there. Um, but teasing out the truth, you know, if you're really, if you're, if you're sensing in your body, oh, God, we're, we're not, this is boring. We're not going anywhere. I'm just, I'm, I'm not engaged, you know, this is not happening. Then there's probably something standing in the way, something that's not, that's true, that's not being acknowledged. Um, and are you the one to help with that or not, you know? But it's, it's, it's a place to start. It's a place to dig a little deeper. Um, and we'll all start from start in that from the way that is most comfortable for us. You know, some of us will be curious. Some of us will be um, coming from a place of, of, of empathy. It, it, and it doesn't matter, really. The point is to kind of start somewhere so that you can tease out that deeper truth. We've talked, uh, touched on when is the truth not yours to share and to whom do you owe the duty of truth? You know, what are the ethics around uh, dealing with the truth in these settings and there, it's a little more formal than, you know, with uh, your own personal life or your own personal set of relationships. And so it's good to know 
exactly what the expectation is for you in that setting for sharing information. And that's a good place to ask lots of questions in your orientation or of your supervisor. Um, If in doubt about revealing something you know that you think somebody should know, I would say don't, you know, until you get clarification. Because the first rule is do no harm with the truth. And it can be harmful. Um, I'm thinking about when I was a really young chaplain and uh, a patient was really clear that he was going to stop having um, his blood transfusions. He had some kind of a, um, a thrombocytopenia and where his body was killing platelets and he had to have platelet replacement on a regular basis. And it had, was pretty advanced. It was something he was having to do you know, almost once a week, very expensive. And he decided he was going to stop that. And he told me this kind of really openly with other caregivers in the room and whatever. So I, so I didn't understand that that was a, a confidential disclosure in a certain sense. So when his adult child came, I asked them, oh, my God. Um, so how do you feel about the fact that your dad's going to stop treatment? He didn't know. Oh, my gosh. Thank God for a good supervisor who kind of salvaged that situation for me. Um, and the patient himself it was going to tell him that day. He just decided. He was very open, so there was not a problem there. But, of course, that was not my place to share that information. And so it was a misjudgment. Um, we make misjudgments, and we have to deal with them. You know, so that really taught me. That taught me that this is not your news to share. Uh, be clear about that. Be clear about what you, the patient expects you to do with information. Often comes up around death and when someone's ready to die. You know, that, there will be times when, if you're working in hospice, if you're working in a palliative care, when you, you will have that relationship with a patient and they will be sharing that with you sooner than some other people in their world. Often their doctor's the last to know because they feel like they're failing their doctor. Um, but, yeah, just a little bit of a word to the wise. And then when do you share the truth of your own experience? We, this is a thread that's stranded through all of our conversations. And um, as I was preparing this and thinking about it um, with my husband, who's a retired Episcopal priest, when his father was dying, he'd had a stroke, and he was living with a feeding tube, and he was depressed, and he just kind of was ready for it all to end. And toward the end, um, what we thought was toward the end, but we thought he had quite a bit of time left in his life. But he called him one day. He lived in Florida, and we live in California, so they hadn't seen each other for a while. And his father said to him, um, even though it was very difficult for him to communicate, he he basically said, Jim, is there anything on the other side? What's going to happen when I die? I'm ready, but, but I need to know. I need to know. So that could be asked of you. And when we're in the role of a formal chaplain, you know, what are we going to say? How would we answer, respond to that? Let's think about, think for yourself for a minute. How would you respond to that? It's a little different with the father. Well, what Jim said was, gee, Dad, aren't you remembering about my heart attack. He had a heart attack when he was 25. He said, I was 
dead on the table. I was looking at everyone, and I saw the white light, and I was going toward that tunnel. I was at such peace. I only came back because the doctor was pounding my chest and saying, don't die, goddammit, don't die, goddammit. He said, I felt bad for him. He was in training. I couldn't let that happen. (laughs) But he said, there's something there. There's something there, Dad, and it's good. And uh, the next day, his dad sent the family out for ice cream and passed very peacefully. So, you know, Jim's always felt good about sharing it that way. Um, And we'll have those moments, too, where it's, like, really intimate and you really will share what you really believe and think. And other times when we'll keep reflecting back, what are you thinking? You know, what do you expect? And we'll let that be their story and not about us. Discernment, always discernment. I think the third place where truth is really important in chaplaincy, and sometimes this still takes, I don't think so much with you guys, because you're real social activists, but for some chaplains it takes a while for them to take on this dimension of the work and to do it well. And that is being truthful with the organization you're serving with, particularly with respect to obstacles that you observe as a quasi-outsider that cause suffering that are impeding compassionate presence or response and that you believe could be better. Um, You may have an idea for that. You may not, but you'll just know this system doesn't work well. I remember that um, I I felt that when I was working in the labor and delivery um, uh, service of one of my hospitals and uh, they had 60, 70% of the babies there were born to Spanish-speaking immigrant moms, and they didn't have enough interpreters. And, you know, in this really important moment in a country that's not the birth country of the mother necessarily, um, and without being able to communicate directly in, in language, to, to not be able to have somebody interpret well for you, That's not okay. For me, that was not okay. So how do you deal with the truth of that? Interpreters, medical interpreters, I'm telling you, they're very expensive. Um, So this is not an easy fix. Uh, Yeah, maybe you have somebody who you know is a rich donor and they're going to endow an interpretation chair and, and that'll hire five interpreters for the labor and delivery service. Probably not. You're probably going to have to work with it. First of all, convince the powers that be that it's needed. How do you do that? Who do you work with to do that? How do you gather that information? Um, Is it something you take on in your limited role or whatever? Um, In that case, it was very important. And so there were nurses who felt that way too. And so we kind of got a committee together and we took it up as an ethics issue. This was a strategy. This is an ethical issue. This is a compliance issue. This is a legal issue. We could have liability. Um, And eventually, after about a year, we were able to create... Um, a system for staff who were already employed to become medical interpreters. And we had a lot of Spanish-speaking staff, but they just didn't have that extra credential um, or capacity or weren't relieved from their duties to serve in that way. So you can see all the elements that had to come together for it. Very important. It was a question of these moms in, in this time, you know, were suffering more uncertainty and less clarity than they would have been um, if there had been a system in place. So often that will take more than your impulse, but if you have a seed for how something can be better and how to work with it, it can be, it can be an important uh, learning and, and a place of real satisfaction in the work.
often things come up with respect to visitors that create um, artificial impediments to a visitor being there. And the more you're embedded in the, the staff um, or peer relationships of an institution, the, the more you can advocate on an individual basis as well for exceptions when they're, when they're important. Um, it's a place where both truth and courage are required and, again, very careful and thoughtful discernment because you can burn your bridges by being a firebrand. Um, and then you have no power in the situation. So, you know, maybe somebody else is better suited to kind of raise an issue, and maybe this is one you need to let go of. Um, just depends on what, what really gets to you about it and what, uh, how you discern your time. So, um, those are, I think, places to start with sharing truth as a chaplain with yourself practicing in your various capacities about how you work with truth with patients and families and then with the organization itself. What I'd like to do uh, before we take a break is have you um, break into groups of four. Oh, yes, questions. Can you go over the five elements? Oh, sure. So revealing truth, you know, whether it's information or insight. Uh, really helpful often you know a lot of truth about how you navigate in a hospital yeah you can reveal that without any question at all and it's helpful to everyone reflecting truth back or mirroring truths that you're seeing or hearing teasing out the truth that's under the surface that takes a little more skill and care um then the question was when is the truth not yours to share what is your duty of truth and to whom do you owe it And then finally, when do you share the truth of your own experience? So, breaking into groups of four, um, and we'll take about 10, 15, 10 minutes, and then we'll come back and just see what came up for people. Uh, to, just, to just name one situation in the volunteer work you're doing right now where truth was helpful. And because we have, um, well, let's, let's, let's break it down into dyads. That'll be easier to do, and then each person will have a chance because that's right. This is a group that really likes to talk. Okay. <laughs> so just pair up. Pair with anyone you like. It doesn't matter. And each take five minutes to talk about a place when, where truth was helpful in your service. <laughs> okay. I'll ring when it's time to switch, okay? We'll ring now and then when it's time to switch. First person share.
we take a break, um, perhaps we can just turn the chairs back into the center. Yes. Um, we will read them um, after the break. Yeah, that's okay. Great. So, anybody have a word about how you feel about the truth in your volunteer service and your chaplaincy? It might be good if it were like a, a feeling word. Terrified. How about that? <laughs> Fuzzy? Fuzzy. 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 Yeah, I like that. Uh, I'm certain. Yeah. I'm ah. Mm, lovely. Scary. Scary. I missed the original question. Sorry. A, f- a word that kind of caps encapsulates your felt response to the idea of providing, of being engaging with truth in your service. Important. Important. Essential. Essential. Complicated. Complicated. Not simple, is it? Okay. Well, that's where we are. Let's take a break. Come back at 1045, please.